Uh, we're in a series started a few weeks ago called uh, Mountains Can Move. And if you're new to it, basically what that is, is imagery of a story that Jesus told when, in that case, a dad came up and had a situation in his life that he couldn't change. He tried everything he could, but he could not change it. And he came up to Jesus and said, listen, if you can do anything, would you do it? And Jesus said, if I can, if I can. And then he says, listen, all things are possible to him who believes. And he says, and if you have faith like a mustard seed and look at that mountain and say, move from here to there, it will be done for you. And what we saw is mountains in the scriptures are oftentimes a metaphor for things that are unchangeable, immovable, things in our life that maybe you'd given up hope on ever being different than they actually were. And so three or four or five weeks ago, we've got a little bit, we've got a little bit more to go in the weeks ahead but a number of weeks ago, uh, many, many, many of you took a, uh, just took a little rock like this and you wrote down what is the mountain in your life that seemingly is unchangeable. What's the one thing that's heaviest on your heart that you know would please the heart of God and bring God glory if it was different, but for whatever you do, no matter how hard you try, you in some ways, you'd gone from hoping that God was going to do something great to now just kind of coping, and we had to go back from coping back to hoping. Like, you know what? I do believe, I do believe that this mountain can move, and you wrote down, you know, just a cornucopia of different stuff, all right? Some of you wrote down health issues, others of you wrote down uh, finance issues, a lot of you wrote down health issues, a lot of you wrote down prodigals, others of you wrote down emotional stuff, depression, addiction, and so that's what we've been doing, all right? We've looked at everything from shame uh, to comparison, which lends itself to envy, covetousness, all that kind of stuff. Last week, Robbie did a great job on strongholds or addictions. Uh, today, we're going to look at one that is at least was as common as any in there. When you look through that pile of rocks, and by the way, if this is your first time here, man, on your way out, just write one of those things down and say, you know what, this is what I'm praying that God would move, and then put it back in the little display, and what will happen is people will pray for that, all right? People will pray for it. And the one today is one that was at least as common as any of them in there uh, that many of you put down, and it was something to do with your marriage, with something to do with your marriage relationship being a mountain. It's like, listen, this can't move. It seemingly is stuck and it can't get any worse. And uh, let's be kind of honest, the church today, uh, a lot of marriages are in that place. It's in dire straits. Some of you are like, you know what? If it doesn't change, we're just going to call it quits. It's just not working. Others of you are not quite there, but you're like, you know, the, the wow, you know, the wow has turned into a lot more work than you ever thought it would be. All right, the whoa, this is awesome. It's like, it's not that anymore at all. But for all of us, we all come from broken homes. Whether you know it or not, we're fractured humans. We're fractured beings. And there's not a marriage in here that can't improve from a little bit of course correction, all right, including mine. Every time I preach on marriage, it's like my wife loves it because there's some things that God shows me. It's like, you're not doing these. We got to course correct just a, uh, a little bit. Some of you, I don't even have to ask you to pay attention because you have been through the pain of a failed marriage. And it's not the unpardonable sin, but it's amazingly painful. And uh, you don't want to go through that again. Some of you are, are kids. Your parents went through a divorce, and it changed the whole dynamic of your family. And you're like, I don't want my marriage to be like that. Uh, others of you are engaged, and brother, just take some notes, okay? Take some notes today. And then others of you, a lot of you are single. Some of you are single by choice, some of you are single again, some of you are all varying in between there. But let me just say this about if, if that's you. What I want to try to do in this just, is just one message, just, but try to give you a vision, try to give you a vision for what marriage is according to God's plan. 
You get bombarded with everything from Hallmark to this to that and the other to kind of give you this apocalyptic romance of what marriage is supposed to be. And I want to give you just what does God's plan say marriage is supposed to be? And uh, Keller, I think, does it, puts it best when he said marriage is both wonderful and painful. It's both wonderful and painful because the gospel is both wonderful and painful. The gospel is painful because it shows us that our sin was so bad, Jesus had to die on the cross for it, but it's so wonderful that Jesus loves us so much, he chose to die on the cross for us. In the same way, that's the way marriage is. Some of your most enormous pains will come from your marriage relationship. And some of your biggest joys, if not your biggest joys, will come from your marriage relationship. And you're like, I don't plan to be married anytime soon. I'm also just going to say in this passage, you'll see to some degree, understand how God's purposes are worked out through marriage and how he can work them outside of marriage in your case. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, if you're not already there, turn to Genesis 2. This is probably, theologians call this the, the primary reference the primary passage on marriage. This is the passage that Jesus goes back to when he's asked about marriage in the scriptures. Matthew 19, Pharisees come up to him and say, hey, what do you say about divorce and can a man leave his wife for any reason whatsoever? And Jesus quotes this passage we're gonna look at today. And so he actually says, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the question, how do I get out of my marriage? But he answers it by saying, what is God's dream for your marriage? What's God's intention for your marriage? When the Apostle Paul wanted to drill down deep into the theology of the meaning of marriage in Ephesians 5, this is the passage he goes back to. Let me say it again. We can, there's going to be a lot of stuff we cannot even do anything but just scratch the surface on. Two resources. One of them, a couple years ago, we spent five or six weeks just in Ephesians 5 drilling down on the theology of marriage in the iVow series. You can go back. All that stuff is free online. Secondly, more than likely, we're going to go through some of this in the fall uh, as well. But for now... Genesis 2, the passage of primary reference. And so as I walk through it, we're going to do some, a few, few comments, and then I'm going to try to give you three. I just kind of felt baptist so it sounds like we needed three points for a little bit of scaffolding. And these are all action points. I'm like, if I do this, I'm at least taking one step toward moving the mountains in my marriage. Let's look at this scripture first, though. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now leave that up there for a second. So far, contextually, seven times in the creation account in the Genesis narrative, God has said it is good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. He gets to this point and he says, it is not good that man should be alone. Actually, the not good is in the emphatic position in the Hebrew. It's actually not good is man's aloneness. In other words, there's something I've got to change here. He said, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, ladies, don't take that as some kind of dismissive context. We'll come back to that. It's the Hebrew word, Ezer, which is usually used for God. All right, God is certainly not less than man. It's the idea that, you know what? There's some stuff that this guy doesn't have, and he needs somebody to come along and complete in him what is not there. So this is not a dismissive term. It's actually very complimentary. If anything, it's actually saying the woman brings stuff to the table that the man cannot do. Amen. I did hear a couple of amens. All right. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, which by the way, has got to be the coolest job God ever gave anybody. How awesome would that be? Just like, you know, caterpillar, crocodile, hip. I mean, that's anyway, next verse. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, 
There was not found a helper fit for him. Some of your translations say suitable for him. It's the Hebrew word konedgo, which means like me, but not like me. Looks like me, but it's opposite of me. Like, you know, he, he didn't, she doesn't look like everything else, but she doesn't look exactly like me either. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh. Take, take some notes here. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Just that in and of itself is awesome, that God brings the woman to the man for the first marriage ceremony. Then the man said... Now, let me tell you this, guys, right off the front. Okay, this is, it doesn't seem like that impressive what he says here. This is actually a love song. This is like poetry. So the first words out of a human's mouth to another human, it's like poetry. Guys, it's, it's like, if you try to whittle it all down, he's like, booyah, this is it. This is awesome. I mean, think about it. Let's just be really blunt here. This guy's been looking at, This guy's been looking at like alligators and snakes and giraffes. God then brings the perfect woman, totally naked, to Adam. And here's what he says. This at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now stay with him. The brother's trying, all right? He's trying hard. She shall be called woman. Now this is where he's cool. This is what he's saying. There's a little word play here. She shall be called woman. It's the word isha. Because she came from the man, the man's words is ish. So he's like, this is, this is the person that came from me and she's like me. She's not like the rest of this, but she's also not exactly like me as well. And then God interjects himself in verse 24. Now this is super important because when God interjects himself into the narrative here, he's gonna make a point to say, you know what? This is not just some scene from however long ago. This is to be the template for all marriages. This is, to be the, this is to be the pattern that I'm going to make the family a part of. This is not something that was invented in Mesopotamia for civil, litiga- civil litigation 50,000 years ago, okay? This is something that God said, listen, this is not about culture. There's a lot of stuff in the Genesis narrative that man is credited with, architecture, urban planning, a bunch of that stuff. But here he says, no, marriage is God's idea, not culture's idea. And when he interjects in here, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. You know, one of the reasons you know it's a template? I mean, Adam Adam didn't even have a father and mother. He didn't have a father and mother leave. He's saying this is to be a pattern. I mean, heck, Eve wasn't on eHarmony. Eve didn't have any choices but Adam. But he's saying this is what marriage is going to be. This is what Jesus goes back to when he talks about marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then in verse 25, this is sort of the scene, and everybody's like, man, I wish the Bible would have been awesome if it had just like stopped in verse 25. And this is pretty cool. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's like, man, that would have been awesome. That was like perfect, correct. We don't have time, but chapter three, it all starts to unravel. And what I want to try to do in our brief time is give you some things. And this is some of the material we've gone over a little bit before. I'm going to try not to be unnecessarily blunt but I do understand there's some things we don't have time to go all the way in. That's kind of what we're going to try to do in the fall. But please hear me on these three points. The first one is super important. And if you want to move the mountain in your marriage, you've got to recommit to the covenant, to your covenant that you made. You've got to recommit that I've made a covenant with another person. 
The reason that's important is we live in a contract culture, not a covenant culture. And a contract culture is fine where it's, where it's done. I've got a contract with the power company. And the contract basically says, you provide me goods and services and I'll probably provide you a payment. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. All right, I'll write you a check, you provide me electricity. If there's ever a day when you cease to provide me electricity, I will cease to provide you a check. Or on the flip side, if I ever cease to provide you a check, I can be sure you will cease to provide me electricity. That is called, that is called a contract and contracts are done all the time. But contracts and a consumer mentality is deadly when it comes to your marriage. Now, covenant's a strange language, but you have, if, you're a, if you're a parent, you have a covenant relationship with your kids, correct? I mean, I hope you do. You don't have a contract or a consumer mentality with your kids. Nobody in here has ever gone up to their kids and said, you know what, Scooter? You're 12 years old. It's been a good 12 years. It's been kind of a nice ride while we've had it. But, you know, I've been hanging around the neighbor's kids, and they're a lot nicer than you, and I'm happier when I'm with them. So I'm trading you in for the neighbor's kids. Said nobody ever, okay? You might have felt that way, but you actually didn't do it. Why? Because you have a covenant relationship with your kids. So here's what we got to be aware of. Uh, suppose you went to a wedding. You got invited to a wedding. You went and you got a good present. You went and put the present on the table. Then you sat down to watch the, the service and the exchange of vows. I mean, a contract, a contract would be, I mean, you imagine if the groom came up there and it's like, I take thee, Susie, to be my lawfully wedded wife. As long as you have makeup on when you wake up in the morning, as long as you stay a size six, and then she looks back at him, and as long as you're making 75K a year, and as long as you mow the lawn, then we'll be husband and wife. You'd like, man, you like, get out of there. I got to go get my wedding present. I want to get a refund because that wedding is not going to last. That marriage is not going to make it. Verse 24 says, they will hold fast. He will hold fast to his wife, which literally means to make a covenant. It means to make a covenant to become one flesh is the idea is that two people become fused together at the deepest levels, everything, bank accounts, emotionally, physically, dreams that they've got, goals that they've got, what they feel like their life is about. Because the covenant's got a horizontal aspect and then also a vertical aspect. The vertical aspect, when I do a wedding, is basically this. Whenever our pastors do a wedding, here's what it usually starts off. Something like this. You greet the people who are there at the wedding. Thank you for attending the wedding of whatever, Scooter and Susie. And, uh, you know, and today you guys affirm before God, family, and friends that you believe God has purpose, that you share bonds and the holy uh, bonds of a Christian marriage. That's what they're saying. They're acknowledging, though, they're acknowledging it's not just about the people in the room. It's about the God that they say that they worship. And so... Initially, you've kind of got two sets of vows. The first one is this. Um, I'll look and I'll say, uh, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better and worse, richer and for poor until death do his part, so help you God, amen. And he says, I do. Now listen, the, technically he's talking to me. Technically he's talking to me. They're not even looking at each other at this point. Technically they're talking to me, but really what they're doing is they're making a covenant before God Almighty. They're saying, this is what I promise to do. This does not have to do with what I'm feeling right now. This is not me saying, oh man, my stomach is in a knot right now and you may smell like Starbucks and Skittles and that's awesome and I feel like rainbows are gonna be in our entire future. That's not what they're doing. When you're making a covenant like that, it has more to do with your future promise than your present feelings that you're having. Your present feelings are going to come and go. Statistically, they say infatuation lasts somewhere about 18 months. 
means after about 18 months, if the only thing you've got is that little nervous twitch in your stomach, after that, if there's nothing it's built on, then it's not going to last. The horizontal aspect is the second set of vowels that's basically like, I, Susie, take the scooter to be my lawfully wedded husband. Now they're talking horizontally to each other. And so um, sometimes people are like, you know what? I want to write my vows. I want to write my vows. And that's okay. But I always say, if I get to see them first, all right? Because if they do something stupid, like, you know what? I'm going to make you happy. I'm going to make you happy. It's like, eh, you, you can't deliver on that promise, bro. You can't make her happy. You can make her unhappy, but you can't make her happy. And so uh, we'll come to that in a second. You got to recommit though. And here's where some of you are. One of the best things you could do today when your marriage is on thin ice. And one of you more than likely is kind of the instigator of that. One of you kind of trying to hold on. The other one's like, hey, let's call this thing quits. Let's throw the towel in. Kids are gone. Let's just kind of, let's, let's kind of throw the towel. You got to remember you made a covenant. Covenant, not a contract. And when you do that, here's what you'll, here's what you'll rediscover. You, you'll reject the myth, and that's what it is, of the one. You'll reject the myth of the one. You know where that comes from? Well, you know, here's, here's basically what the myth of the one says. The myth of the one says, you know what? There's that, my other half is out there somewhere in the world. And I, if I can find that one out there, that one designed for me, if I can just run into her at Six Flags or if I can just run into him at the grocery store, if I can run into that special one, my other half, then I'll be happy. And if I don't, then I really can never be happy if I never run into him. The problem with that, by the way, is half the time when you're married, that person you married was the one when you got married. It's like, where did that come from? It didn't come from the Bible. That came from Greek mythology. Plato wrote a story where King Zeus chops a human in half and they run off and the whole rest of the story is they got to find their other missing half. And so you got to reject the fact that, you know what, I cannot be happy until I find that one. Understand this. The one you're in covenant with is the one. The one you are in covenant with, that you stood before God and said, I promise to love you for better, for worse. That is the one. That's the one. That is the one. That's the one immediately that God said, okay, that's the one. That's the one I'm going to throw my support behind. That is the one. And uh, I can't wait. At some point, uh, you're like, we, we, we've, we've made it where marriage is supposed to, you know, I can't be happy until I find the one. I can't be happy until I find the one. Please hear me on this. Happiness is not the reason to get married. It's the result of a healthy marriage. Happiness, because that's what, that's what people say. That's why the number one reason people leave is they go, you know what? I'm not happy in my marriage. Therefore, I'm leaving my marriage to go find the one that's going to make me happy. Listen, there is not a single person out there that is gonna fill the hole in your soul. And if you put that weight on him, if you put that weight on her, saying, you know what, I found my six foot four, 220 pound savior. If you put that on him, he will be crushed under the weight of trying to make you happy. He's not made for that. 
And here's what will happen. If you idolize him, you idolize her, thinking she is going to solve all my insecurities. About 18 months in, 24 months in, that idolization will come and become demonization. That's what will happen. You'll go from, I'm idolizing him. He's going to solve all my problems. So man, he doesn't even pick up his underwear or lift up the seat. I don't like him anymore. And so you got to understand, it's not that one, the one out there that loves you like nobody else can love you. His name is not Bob or Scooter's name is Jesus, okay? Jesus is the one that knows you perfectly. He knows you perfectly and still doesn't leave. He knows you perfectly and still chose to die on a cross for you. That's the love that's going to fill all that hole in your soul. Here's what happens. Lonely, insecure, unhappy, single people. Two lonely, insecure, unhappy, single people. If they get married, that makes a lonely, insecure, unhappy marriage. That's not going to fix it. As a matter of fact, what's going to happen most of the time is it's just going to reveal the fractures that were already there. It's just going to put the pressure on them. It's like, man, I didn't even know that about myself. I didn't know I was a wretched, black-hearted sinner. I had no idea. You know what? I thought I was a pretty good guy until I got married. Do you know that? I thought I was a pretty awesome dude until I got married. Nobody argued with me. Man, I was in an apartment in Fort Worth, Texas. My roommates were doing interns at churches out of town. I had the apartment to myself. They paid their share of the rent. I thought, this is awesome. And then I got married, and all of a sudden, all that selfishness and pride that was hidden because I didn't have to be selfless with anybody. I didn't have to be humble with anybody because it was just me, myself, and I. And then all what marriage did is put the pressure on that stuff to all of it coming out. I think it's Keller that puts it in his wedding ceremony. He said, marriage is like, marriage is like, it's like a bridge. It's like a wooden bridge that has all these fractures in it, all these defects in it, all these things in there that you can't see with the naked eye, just hairline fractures that are in there. But he said, when a Mack truck drives over that bridge and puts the stress and pressure on that bridge, all of a sudden those things that were hidden, those things that nobody could see, those little invisible cracks, those little invisible defects with that pressure of a Mack truck on there, all of a sudden those spill out and are amazingly visible. Loved ones, what you got to understand is the Mack truck of your marriage at some point is going to drive over all of that stuff and then reveal, not replace, reveal all that stuff that's there. And so when you look at this, the, the, the idea of the one, the idea of the one is, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's a, you might as well be looking for a unicorn, okay? Unicorn at the end of the rainbow. You know what? That one does not exist. Or if it does, it's the one you're already married to in the first place. All right, um, since there weren't a lot of amens on that one, let me give you this last one. This might be a little bit more helpful. This is kind of the fun one, all right? You see what Adam did, dudes? Guys, this is like easy pickings for us today, okay? Easy. See what he did? I mean, right there, God brings the woman to him. And he's like, yeah, this is it. That's literally what he's saying. This is it. This is it. This is good. That's what he said. He is so excited about it, and he's rejoicing in his companion. Now, there's a lot of purposes for marriage. First and foremost is to show a picture of the gospel. Ephesians 5 says the mystery of marriage is that this is actually a picture of the way Christ loves his church. So the steadfastness, the way that you love, even when you maybe are not even being loved back, that's supposed to be a picture of the gospel. Biltmore Church, the, one of the number one apologetics should be to Western North Carolina should be the marriages of Biltmore Church. 
not saying they are, they should be the number one apologetic. Yeah, if you're out there, if we're out there serving, that might be a little bit one, but 1A ought to be our marriages. And so you rejoice in your companion. The immediate context of Genesis 2 of the reason that God created marriage was simply companionship. It was, in some ways, you could almost call it friendship. The Song of Solomon's got a word that that's what it had. It says the, says the husband looked at his wife as a friend. And for most of the time, we discount friendship in marriage. Friendship's like, man, I love spending time with you. I love spending time with you. That's a friend. We usually discount it. Why? Because the apocalyptic romance that is always, man, if it's not all this stuff, then it's not strong. All that stuff is great, but the foundation better be a covenant friendship. And that's why in verse 24, the creation of woman is a response to man's aloneness. You're like, well, that's just part of the fall. Actually, it's not. It's actually not. This is before the fall. And this is actually not because he had some fractured relationship with God like we do. It's not that. He had a perfect relationship with God. This guy's having a quiet time 24-7. God and him are like talking like friends. But even then, he's like, it's not good man's aloneness. In other words, he needs some human companionship. And so here's the two words I put up there. And this is, uh, this is the, these are the two words, depending on translation, Ezer is helper. It's usually translated helper. Kinetgo is usually translated fit for him or suitable to him. Now, this is, this is great for a bunch of reasons. Number one, some of you guys just need to have some good nicknames for your spouse, correct? I mean, some of you guys got honey boo boo or whatever. I mean, you imagine the romance in your home if this was your nickname. What up? He's there. What up? He's there. Can Ed go? She might, I mean, it might be a great day at your house if you just pulled this thing out today, whatever you want to do. He's there. Can Ed go? You are perfectly suited to me. You're not, you're not me. You're different than me, but you're awesome. That's really what he's saying. You're equal to me, but you're not the same as me. And when you look at this text, again, Ezer means helper, someone who supplies what is lacking, indispensable. Kinedgo is a like, but different like him, but is because she's his equal, but different, a different gender. And there's actually a little wordplay you might not even see where he says, she came out of man Woman there is Isha, and man there is Ish. And he's celebrating. He's like, Isha came from Ish. In other words, she's coming from me. She's my equal. She's like me, but she's, I'm pretty fired up because she's not exactly like me. And what you see in here is obviously that um, Scripture's real clear that there's more than just the biological uh, differences. I mean, biologists say every cell of our body is either XX or XY, uh, i.e., uh, God did not just make a two exact people and then put a little different plumbing on them. He said, I'm making somebody like you, but not like you. Now, I don't want to get into the stereotypes. I know sometimes preachers particularly, and even really lately, some preachers, in my opinion, have made some dumb comments that they've taken Scripture and they've applied those things to their preferences or their own personal, personal convictions. That's fine. But listen, God did not set it up just so that we could have a family like the 1950s, okay? I've heard preachers say, well, you know, the Bible says that women shouldn't work. What do you do with Proverbs 31, okay, about the industrious woman? Anyway, I'm sorry. 
Um, so I don't want to do stereotypes about how men should be this and women should be this, and, but there are some biblical distinctives that are there. All right, don't want to, we don't have time to do all of them. There's a ton of biblical distinctives. I'll try to give you a couple just for application uh, uh, today, and we'll try to unpack it more in the fall when we kind of go through a bunch of this stuff. But um, I, w- I will tell you one way, even the way that you argue, you know, the way that you argue and fight is different. Even the way that you hear and communicate is different. You ever notice that God tells the man a number of different times, like, for example, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. It's always telling us to love our wives, love our wives, love our wives. Have you ever seen the fact that over and over and over again, he's telling the wife, wife, respect your husband, respect your husband, respect your husband. That's not by accident. This is a little bit of a generalization, but here's basically what I'm going to say. Is that typically, typically, ladies communicate and listen to the language of love, and men typically listen and communicate and respond to the language of respect. Or to put it in a blunt way, here's the, here's the place we all struggle with. Husbands battle, their number one battle in some degree or another is passivity. It's passivity. It's neglecting their wife. Wives typically struggle in the area of criticism or nagging their husbands. Now, before you write this off and before you say, well, you shouldn't use the word nag, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, ladies. It is. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, so don't, don't shoot the messenger. But, so let me pick on the guys first. Guys, do you understand about the men, and it's about passivity. Now, I would say that the men in this room, the husbands in this room, I don't think there's a husband in this room that would not lay down his life physically for his wife. I don't think so. I don't think there's a man in here, I don't think there's a husband in here that if you all are asleep at night and there's, uh, you hear some sound downstairs, yeah, I don't think there's a husband in here who's going to like, hey, baby, you need to go check on what's going on downstairs. Right? I hope there's not. If there is, man, check your man card right this minute. You would do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Check it right now. I don't think there's a man like that in here. I think most of us are like, hey, I'll go check it. Now, you might be scared. I might be scared. But I don't think anybody's like that. But bottom line, that's really not. How often is that even going to be asked of you? Rarely, if ever. What, it, what the question is asked is, will you serve your wife? Because that's, really that's really what the whole spiritual leadership is. The whole spiritual leadership is not like, hey, I'm the leader, do what I say. The whole thing about spiritual leadership, if our example is Jesus, then the way that we lead is by laying down our rights for them. That's the way you lead. I hadn't seen too many wives buck that and say, no, I don't want anybody loving me enough to lay down his life for me and making sure that my needs are met before his own. I just hadn't seen that very often. Never, actually, I've never seen that. So um, passivity. Uh, you're like, where's that in the Bible? I'll just, I can give you a bunch of examples, but in our text right here, if you go one chapter over, uh, Adam, everybody blames Eve for taking the forbidden fruit. Why did she do that? Why did she do that? She ruined the whole thing. Do you understand Adam was right there? Do you understand it was actually God who told Adam before he even created Eve, don't do that or you will die. Don't do that or you will die. Obviously assuming that he would then tell his wife, here's what God said, and then they get to the next chapter, and he's just sitting there playing Game Boy or Xbox or something while she pulls the whole thing down. It's passivity. And guys, I know the reason we're passive. I battle it too. You're not passive in other areas. We tend to be passive with our wives, and we tend to be passive in our homes. Why are we like that? 
usually because we don't feel competent to do so. You feel competent when you go to work. You feel competent when you're on the basketball court or whatever. But most men do not feel competent when you're trying to do anything spiritually with your family. You just don't. So let me help us all. Let me help us all. Like, man, I wish I could just kind of do something. I'm kind of new to this Christian deal and trying to lead my wife and love my family. I'm trying to be that kind of dad. What do I do? Let me give you a few little just kind of easy things. Number one, just ask her. Ask her, hey, babe, easy air can I go? I tell you, I'd impress her. All right, easy air can I go? How can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? Just ask her. And then just pray for that, whatever she says. She's like, babe, I tell you what, I got to, maybe she's a teacher. Ah, babe, you know, I got to, I got, I, got a, I got some crazy kids in my fourth hour. Would you pray for me to have patience? All right. Or I got this super big presentation I'm making it work or whatever that is. And then I can just take her by the hand and go, God, I want to pray for my wife. You'd help her be patient with those crazy kids. Give her boldness with that presentation at three o'clock. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, you're like going to be, you're going to be Superman. You're going to be Superman. Or, um, I mean, I, I, another one would be just, with your, with your kids, maybe you're on the way home today. Do you know that if you have kids, your kids are learning the same thing you're learning from the same text? So on the way home today, maybe you say, hey, Junior, what do you think about that whole deal about God bringing a woman to a man? Pretty awesome, huh? Pretty awesome, isn't it? And then who knows? Goes from there. Let me give you a third one. How about just some words of affirmation? I'll tell you right now, I'm terrible at this. I'm like a type A, high expecta. I'm terrible at this. But you notice what Adam did, there was nothing about, well, she's not this and she's not that. And what about these other people? Now, granted, there was no other body to compare her to. But all he was was like, man, I appreciate you. God, thank you for giving me this awesome woman. Does your wife, guys, does she know that you believe in her? Does she know that you like are grateful to God for her. Just tell her. Just tell her that. That's her language. Man, I love you. Phenomenal. So, just say, God, I'm so glad God brought us together. It's going to be a great next 20 years. And uh, hey, ladies, let me just say this about you. You can, you, can, you can ignore me. You can ignore me at your peril. Listen to me now. Men, husbands, they, their lens in which they hear virtually everything is the lens of respect or disrespect. You can say it shouldn't be so. You can say, say sociologists say whatever. I'm just telling you, it's just the truth. They see things through the lens of respect or disrespect. One family counselor said for the first 10 years of marriage that the wife is asking, does he love me? Does he love me? Does he love me? Does he love me? And for the first 10 years of a marriage, the husband's asking, does she respect me? Does she respect me? Does she respect me? And so ladies, I just, I got to ask you this. Uh, He is going to blossom where he feels competent. He's going to, and I'm not saying you can't complain about certain things. I'm not saying you can't complain. I'm not saying you can't say, hey, man, we need to spend some more time together. Or, hey, we gotta, you know, maybe you got to cut back on the hunting a little bit so we can take a family vacation or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with working on your marriage, okay? But there's a difference between attacking the problem and attacking the person. If you're attacking the person and you go far enough, here's what's going to happen. I'll just tell you, he's going to withdraw. He's going to withdraw. He's going to get more passive most of the time. 
You're saying, well, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't. We live in a broken world. I'm telling you, the lens in which he hears it, if you were to just think about what it is that you respect about him, in some ways, we're not even that different than when we were five years old on the playground. I mean, what happened five years old on the playground? Man, we would do crazy stuff on the gymnasium, or we'd do crazy stuff on the, we do somersaults. We'd like break our arms just to impress you. And we'd be like, hey, Johnny, I don't think you can do like a triple, triple sow cow. We will try a triple sow cow just to impress you. So if you just say, hey, babe, that was a, thank you so much for praying for me. Do you think that's going to make him pray less with you? No. I mean, he's going to go fired up Charles Spurgeon. He's going to think he's like the most awesome prayer. And so just ask yourself the question, what can I do? Ladies, I'll just say this. Wives, you, you have no idea the power of your words over your husband. You have no idea. I mean, I can say the same thing. My wife is such a cheerleader for me, such a cheerleader. Always just, she's trying to call me into what God has for me. Always just, seriously, what you see on Sundays is what you get, what she gets the rest of the week. And she's always just cheerleading, cheerleading, cheerleading. And, but honestly, you can sit there and do, you can say virtually anything to me. You can write me an email saying I'm some jack wagon that you're never coming back to church and you don't like the way I look and I talk like a hick or whatever you want to say. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to answer you, but I'm going to sleep fine. But if my wife says something like that, man, this is like, you know why? Because she knows me. She knows all the weaknesses. She knows all the stuff. I mean, even to show you, this is not even a criticism, and I'll close with this. About two months ago, I was preaching a sermon. I was kind of down because I was like, I preached way too long, all right? I preached way too long, and it kind of messes up the services, and the other campuses get all messed up. And all. so I was like, man, I, and I was telling her, I was like, man, I preached too long. I preached, I preached, I was like, I preached like 55 minutes, so I just preached too long, I preached too long. And she, and, just, and, I was, and she just very gently was like, man, because what I'd done is I'd like taken the whole redemptive story, man. I started like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. I mean, I was like on, I was just like wired with a, you know, some kind of energy drink. I mean, it's just wired. And she just goes, hey, you know, I just mean, you know, maybe next time just don't preach the whole Bible. It's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, that's, that's like, that's awesome. I needed to hear that. But I'm listening to that. That's two and a half months ago. In between then, I probably got 400 emails that I don't remember. But I remember that one. So wives, just think about what is it you can say to help him feel competent in what he's trying to do. You're like, man, that's the man I married. That's the man. Just find something. You can find something. Five things. Give five things. For every criticism, do five things. You're like, man, I've blown it. I've blown it. My wife isn't even here with me. My husband isn't even here with me. They don't want anything to do with church because I'm always preaching at them. How about this? Just realize it's not the end, okay? Start over again. Start over again. In this story, that's the first Adam. What did the first Adam do? What did Adam and Eve do? They disobeyed God, they took the fruit from the tree, and then they died spiritually. But the Bible says there's a second Adam. His name is Jesus, okay? He obeyed God. He climbed up on that tree and then died for you and I so that we could have life. And so today, that allows us to repent well.